Hello and welcome to Why We're Talking About Rabbits. Today there's no rabbits. There's no rabbit holes. There's just a story. And if you like stories, and I think stories well told, get ready. Because today, using all of that we have in history, philosophy, all these ideas, we're going to put them all, pack them all together. We're going to listen to this pretty incredible man, Dr. William Kweyagizi, a Rwandan, tell the story of his life in that furnace that was Rwanda, including his personal experiences and then how he popped out on the other end with this PhD from Harvard or, or, or his undergrad. His, studies at Harvard, his degrees at Harvard, his PhD in Australia. It is a story that needs some telling. He's got a great book. We'll introduce you to the book. Today on Watar, Dr. William Kweyagize and stories untold from the Rwandan genocide. Fascinating look at things old found new again. So, Dr. William Twayagizi, I'm going to call you William from here on out. How are you? Yeah, yeah, no. Good I'm to see good, you. I'm good. good to see you too. We've gotten to know because we we share something like this old world, new world concept that you came from the old world, what I call the old world on this podcast, sort of traditional East Africa, Rwanda, which we're going to talk about. And then you've made your way through a couple PhDs or a number of college degrees, um, PhDs, you're a professor, you've seen all that this new world, this Western world offers, and you've got incredible insight. So it's like a total joy to have you here today. Uh, and you know, and I've got it kind of going in reverse where I, you know, went to Columbia, yada, yada, and then went to Africa and got my life changed in a lot of ways. So it is a joy to try to figure this out together, this this idea, by mostly listening to your story that you're telling in this uh, new book that's coming out, Survivors Uncensored, about, uh, well, about your life. Do I have all that right? Do I, does that sound correct? Yeah, um, and the book is a collection of stories of the people who survived uh, the massacres in Rwanda and in, in Congo. So it's a collection of stories of um, survivors, uh, people who gave uh, testimonies of their lives because um, uh, what happened is that the Western media actually always uh, intended to promote uh, one narrative of what <laughs> happened to people in Rwanda and in Congo. So uh, People who survived the, the experience, who went through the massacres and survived it, uh, uh, decided to come together and put the stories together so that the people could read it, but also uh, as a way of keeping a record of what happened to us. So that's how the book came together. It has uh, over 100 uh, testimonies wow. of people from um, different uh, time, but also people who live across the continent. Uh, I mean, across the globe, because uh, there are people. Uh, the book is published in both English and French because we have uh, also people who don't speak English, uh, whose uh, primary language is French, 
So that's why we've said that they probably it should be necessary to put it in both languages. So it's a collection. And I'm a part of those people who gave a testimony uh, because we felt that our stories were never told or even our stories were told by other people. So that's right. Mm -hmm. Allow other people to tell your story and they also hold your pen, your pen, then they they are more likely to tell it the way that they want it. So our case um, in Rwanda and the Congo, uh, as the refugees from Rwanda and the Congo, our stories were told by the victors, uh, which didn't include uh, what we went through. And uh, mm -hmm. so publishing those stories, uh, we managed to tell our own stories in the, because we lived the, the experience. Let me, let's do this. Let's tell your story, I, at least parts of it, because it's incredible, first of all. And I, yes. I, I want to pull it, I want to pull it out if you'll do it with us. But I'll preface it by saying, that's what interests me in our conversation. And I think part of this local versus global sort mm -hmm. of, right, um, people on the ground versus people further away with power perhaps but not with insight that's yes. part of what made you sort of call me up which is like the way we do or assist people is yes. the same way you want to tell the story right from the inside out rather than from the outside in yes so most of the models uh you will hear that uh, over the years that uh, uh there is a lot of money poured into africa and the other developing countries trying to help them. But the, the models uh, were external models, were foreign concepts to the indigenous people. That's why those models never worked. Uh, the World Food Program, uh, the USAID, the World Vision, and the other organizations uh, continued pouring a lot of money into projects to uplift the livelihood of indigenous communities across the globe, especially in what they refer to as the global south. Mm -hmm. But with the limited success, the reason is because the, the concept are Western concept, which works in America, does not give any guarantee that such a model um, intervention is going to work in any other part of the world. That, yeah. that was the problem. That has been the problem yeah. and still the problem. So what I liked about um, uh, your organization is that uh, <clears throat> you include the local communities and also you go and uh, spend time with the uh, local communities uh, so that uh, you, together with them, you identify what might be the challenges and also uh, through that process, then uh, you find out how you can address what kind of intervention um, or what called sustainable development model that could help to solve the problem that they have. Uh, unlike the UN and the Western countries, which uh, decide what the problem is, yeah. Everything's top down. How to solve that uh, problem. Yeah. 
the top-down model. The top-down model does it work, and in most of the cases, um, it only works. It only works by giving instructions, but it does not work yes. in the instructions. Yes. So this top-down model, I think, I associate it with a type of thinking. You can call it. Mm. You can call it a. I think left brain thinking in the sense that it's about propositions and then it's about delivering resources to build the proposition. Like I propose that all of you Kenyans or all of you Rwandans get educated in the Western way because it's good. And then I propose this. And then basically in the proposition, if I see what I think of in my head become a reality, then I think that that's success because my re my proposition in my head became real on the ground. And I always think that when that happens, I've seen schools built in Haiti, like 10 schools were proposed by missionary groups and they built them all. And then they all claim success. But it's really weird because if you go into the schools, the human beings working in there would not think of what's happening as a success. Yeah. They just Those, have a school. It's not the same as being successful, you know? Yeah, to have a school does not interpret it into uh, having intellect to people. They are, it's a process. So you have to have a school, but also you have to identify those people who should have been in that school and also develop a curriculum, which is suitable to those people in order to help them uh, learn. So those are some of the things that uh, we continue to think about so that we could uh, improve the lives of so many people. So, okay, so that's, that's philosophically you and I, that's how we became friends now. Yes. You saw that top-down thing happening as you went through really what amounts to um, death. I mean, your life as a young man in Rwanda ended in what, I mean, you sort of washed up in a cemetery, and I want you to tell that story right now. But uh, you learned that that story was told a certain way about you that was not your story because it was top down. So tell us, set the stage for us, 1994, yeah. 95, where are you? And what's happening in Rwanda? And then what happens to you? And how does yeah, the so, story get sideways? Yeah, so the story of Rwanda or Congo cannot be told without uh, putting it into context of what is happening uh, now uh, as it relates to technology advancement. So you cannot tell the story of what happened to the Rwandan refugees and the Congolese refugees without uh, looking into what is going on now as we talk about uh, uh, the smartphones, laptops, and the memory chips, mm. uh, such kind of electronics that we need in day-to-day -day lives. Because uh, Rwanda was a victim, a victim of imperialism because uh, and the uh, corporations, because the corporations wanted access to the rich, mineral-rich Congo. And in order to exploit the resources, the coltan, the cobalt, all those minerals are rare minerals, 
which actually helps the countries develop the weapons and the, uh, develop the uh, uh, space programs, but also the day-to-day gadgets that we use, such as cell phones, smartphones. Uh, Congo hosts more than 70% of the global cobalt and the global coltan. You cannot talk of transition from fossil fuel to renewable energy without having access to coltan. Mm. And the coltan, coltan, C-O-L-T-A-N. Yes, coltan, yes, C-O-L-T-A-N, and the cobalt. Cobalt, mm-hmm has more than 65% of the global coltan in the cobalt in the deposit. So you cannot, as a country, you can never develop. In the, last, the next 200 years, you can never advance uh, techn- technologically without have, having access to DRC, mm-hmm. your raw material source. So that's what happened to us. And the DRC One, is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah, the DRC is the, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, as a year. So because they wanted to have access to uh, raw materials in the Eastern DRC, where we find the highest deposit of coltan and the cobalt, they had to invade Rwanda and they remove power and they install a new power. In the process, two, two, two presidents were assassinated on April 6, 1994. Uh, as those presidents were from the peace negotiations in Tanzania. So after assassinating these two presidents, then the, the new regime in Rwanda was installed. And that new regime, uh, the president, the current president of, of Rwanda, uh, General Paul Kagame, was a trained in America in a in a cancer. So in a in a cancer, the, the oh. school of USA General Command School College, something like that. Yeah, he was trained here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a trained in America. So Immediately, then he started a war. After the training, he started a war from Uganda. Came and the two presidents, Hutu presidents, were assassinated the same night as they were from a meeting in Tanzania. Then uh, a new regime was put in place in Rwanda. So millions of Rwandans fled to Congo. Two Hutu presidents were assassinated in Rwanda on April 6, 1994. And nobody talked about it. Nobody talks about it. The story always starts the next day after the assassination. Mm. They tell people who assassinated those two presidents and why. I've never heard, and I'm a historian. I've read everything. I still don't know who did that. Yeah, but the... The reason is clear uh, because uh, uh, two years after assassinating those two presidents and after sending uh, uh, more than four million Rwandan refugees into Eastern Congo, the Rwanda and the Uganda, with the Western help, of course, 
they invaded the uh, Zaire, which is the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo. That was in 1996, two years after they established their own regime that they wanted in Rwanda. Uh, they immediately started preparing for invasion of the Democratic Republic of Congo. So, so, so yes. that 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 geopolitical those pressures to find access to control really all of Central Africa, that pressure is put by powers that be. I want to talk about those. But before yes. I do, before you talk about it, you're what? 21 year old guy no no you're like 15 and you're living no. in in yeah you i was around the 16 i living in a refugee camp in the eastern drc in the, one of the large how did you get to the re, to, to the refugee camp uh, we were pushed out during Every, the civil war yeah the uganda uganda supported the rwanda and tutsi refugees who were in uganda uh, supported by U.S., we were pushed out. And you were a Hutu from a Hutu yeah, family. Yes, yes. And do you so remember? Everybody, do you remember that? What was it like in the streets? What was happening? How did you leave your house? It was a carnage everywhere. I was in school that time, actually. I was in college, uh, so I had started a high school. Uh, we we just ran. Everybody was uh, running for their own dear life. Wow. So there was no thinking twice. Everybody was pushed out of the country and the country remained empty. When I say empty, it was empty because uh, at least 90% of the people were pushed out of the countries. Others were killed uh, on both sides. Hutus and Tutsis were killed. And the, those who survived just uh, uh, ran into uh, neighboring countries. Is, is it right to say something around a million people were killed during those two years? More. More. More than one million, actually. More than one million. Because you have to understand that Rwanda has a, a three tribes, Hutus, who are majority, 85% of the population, and the Tutsis, who are the minority, 14%. And the, the pygmies, who are twas, who are only around the one percent. So uh, in the in the ninety four, uh, Rwanda had only a population of less than six million. And uh, when we were in the refugee camps, we were uh, over four million. Four million. Yes. So you can uh, do simple mathematics. And they see how many people remain inside their countries. Very few people remain inside the country uh, in the 90, uh, 94, 95. Where so, are the camps? The camps move you from Rwanda just across the border to Congo. Is that right? Yes, it was just across the border. Yes. And then those camps, you were there for how long before you move again? Uh, we were there for two years, so we arrived there in the, in the, uh, in the 94, in the July, August, and uh, then uh, later, two years later, in October 96, Rwanda, Uganda, Burundi, um, uh, Ethiopia, 
with the help of, with the blessing from the UK and the US, of course, and the United Nations. So they had to invade Congo. Here's a catch. They invaded the Congo because uh, when they pushed the Rwandan Hutu refugees into camps, they never expected them to go into uh, Zaire because the main objective of a war in Rwanda was to establish um, a platform to invade Congo. Mm. So the main objective of imperialism was to capture Congo, not Rwanda. But you cannot invade Congo unless you have Rwanda because of the proximity, political proximity and the geographical proximity. So you have to clean up Rwanda first, then you add, you put a military equipment and everything, then you stage the next invasion of Congo. That's what happened. In the, 90, in the 94, uh, two Hutu presidents were assassinated. Nobody talked about it. Even you will receive very limited data about it, the assassination. Then um, uh, the Western media, started telling the story the way they wanted it to be told. And how did and, they want it? How did they want it? Basically, is a, the, the Tutsis were saving Rwanda. Yes, uh, that, that was the story. And the, the two Hutu presidents were assassinated by the family, their families. That was the narrative, actually, that uh, the Hutus, Hutu extremists, are the ones, including the Habyarimana's wife, were the ones who planned the assassination of the of the, the two presidents. Yeah. Yes, that's a, that's how the story was told. Which okay, is so, so keep going. Go back now. So now you're you're in the Congo. Give us a what was the refugee camp like? I mean, you were a young man. It was it was hell. So being in a refugee camp and you were a young man, uh, they starved you to death. In fact, these international humanitarian organizations uh, worked closely with the Rwandan regime and the Ugandan regime and the UK and the US and the uh, United Nations to make sure that they starved refugees so that the refugees went back, could they go back to Rwanda? Because this is the problem. When they they assassinated the presidents and they captured the power in Rwanda. They never expected that everybody, almost everybody, would leave Rwanda. So it came as a shock to them. Mm. So the time of the rebels, uh, supported by America and the uh, United Kingdom, came to power in Rwanda, the country was empty. So it was hard for them to go to UN to justify why they captured the country in the first place. Mm. That was a very hard question to answer. You said you wanted to liberate people, but when you got the power, everybody left. So why didn't your family go back at that point? Because there's more to Because they were, they were killing everyone. They were killing everyone. <laughs> That's the truth. They were killing everyone. Look. You can do a simple mathematics. Uh, in the 94, uh, Rwandans 
in the general were 60 million. When they fled in the 95, uh, there were almost 5 million refugees outside of Rwanda. Man, that's a so lot of refugees. How many people remained inside Rwanda? A million. And the also innocent Hutus and Tutsis had been massacred uh, between uh, 90, uh, yeah, that uh, space over three months. But what they don't also tell you is that uh, RPF of General Paul Kagame started uh, killing, massacring Hutus since October 1990, when they invaded Rwanda from Uganda. Hmm. So go. So that. So your family is afraid to go back. Now tell us what happens. Eventually, you go west. Am I correct? Yeah, we you went. went we went. We went to West and established the refugee camps. So it was one country moving to another country. That's what happened. Do you remember that journey? So you've been moved, you've been moved out of Kigali, you're moving as a refugee to Congo, and now you're moving all the way across Africa to the west of in the Congo. Did you did you go to Kinshasa? I can't remember. So uh, yeah, this is how the, it happened. So we moved from, uh, Mia moved from south to uh, Bukavu, which is the south. Then uh, later, uh, after one year, I went to look for my family because we had been separated. So I spent oh. the whole being in contact with my family. When I found my family, uh, all my siblings, two, three of my siblings had been killed. Uh, by the new regime in Rwanda. So that's uh, why my family had to flee. And uh, so uh, we got in contact and uh, I lived with them until 96, in October 96, when uh, the Rwandan regime and the Uganda and the Burundi invaded the refugee camps now. They invaded the refugee camps at around 3 a.m. So everybody had to run for their dear life. So no, everybody was naked. There was no time to pick anything. So you had to. And when we ran uh, nearby uh, the refugee camps, there were active volcanoes called the Nyiragongo, which was still active. So because of the shooting and the killings, many refugees ran toward the active volcanoes and they were burned to death. So, and um, I survived. So when I survived, it was a killing throughout. So we were followed all the way. So I had to flee from Goma all the way to Kinshasa on foot, which is around uh, 6,000 kilometers actually, when you are walking, because when you are walking, you don't fly, you, go, you don't go straight. You have to look for where you right. pass. Right. Uh, cross uh, cross the rivers. So I remember this one river uh, called the River Lubutu. That was in 1997, around the March. So we were living in a place called the Tingting. Tingting is a, it was a refugee camp which was hosting uh, over half a million Rwandan refugees. And it was attacked by Uganda and Rwanda. Uh, again, the Tutsi uh, regime in, 
in a Kigali. So when we were attacked, it was a mass killing. So there was only one road. That road, because of the, re the rest of uh, the place was a dense forest. So what happened is that we went to, to cross, we wanted to cross into uh, Lubutu shopping center. But when we arrived at, we arrived at that uh, bridge, the, the Ugandan army were uh, ahead of us. So they started shooting from uh, ahead of us. And uh, behind, there were uh, the Rwandan troops shooting also from uh, behind us. We were at this bridge, so we didn't know what to do. We didn't know whether to advance because anybody was moving forward was being shot dead. We couldn't go back because also Rwanda, uh, the, Tutsis, the Tutsi soldiers were behind us. Mm -hmm. So we, we created a stampede at that bridge. It was an old bridge until it broke and sunk into a river. And many thousands, thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees sunk into a river and made a new bridge. So as we continued pushing from behind, I crossed over dead bodies who had made a new bridge. On a, the people, a, the people themselves had become the bridge. Yes, on which people the people. Were walking. Yes, the people sunk and they drowned, got drowned, uh, drowned into the river, and they made a new bridge. And you walked across that. Yeah, he was still a young boy, <laughs> so I walked across them, and they went to the nearby airstrip, and I hid myself there until the shooting goes. And and how old the, are you at this point? How old are you? That time I was around uh, 18, 18. 18. Mm -hmm. And that's that's on your way. That's somewhere in the Congo on your way west to Kinshasa to the big capital. Yeah, now we were we had to move because they used to kill us every day, every day. So you had to at least walk more than um uh, 50 kilometers, which is around like uh, 30 miles a day, in order to survive, to stay ahead of the killers. So we had to walk every day, day and night, day and night, day and night, and day, until we crossed over into Kinshasa. And when you got to Kinshasa, you settled down again. Is that right? In some kind of way. Yeah, when we got to Kinshasa, it was uh, actually late because we got to Kinshasa almost uh, five days uh, uh, in May, seven, uh, around 14, uh, 12, 12, May 12. So it was um, probably less than uh, four days before the fall of Kinshasa. Oh, so okay. Once we arrived in Kinshasa, uh, the city, the, the capital fell into the rebels and the Rwanda and the Uganda. Uh, the same people who had been chasing you west. Yeah, the same people who had been killing us all, all along. And nobody was talking about us. So, By the way, I want to say something to people who are listening. If, mm -hmm. if you know Africa a little, then you've heard about the Rwandan massacre or the Rwandan war. And you know many millions were killed 
or at least a million. You know that story, and you probably heard that it was Tootsie. This is happening after that. This is happening in the years, a year or two and three after. And you're yeah, this about hundreds of thousands of people. Now. Yeah, and and William is caught in this. And I'm just telling you, you know, I was in Africa during those times. I never heard anything about this. I'm not sure anybody yeah, no. did. You see, when the story doesn't sell the imperialism narrative, they don't talk about it. Uh, the Western media doesn't tell the story if it doesn't serve their own interest. That's the truth. And so what's the interest here? Why are they chasing these Hutu refugees halfway Because across? you had you had to remove them out of the way so that you can plunder Congo. You, you couldn't plunder Congo if these refugees were still mm. uh, they supposed the minerals are. Mm. And most of the minerals are in Eastern DRC. The coltan, the cobalt, the uranium, the uh, the diamond, the gold, the timber. Everything. This was a cleanup effort to stabilize that eastern part of Congo in a way that the proper mining and and could take place in a way to to benefit whom though. These are corporate players and also state players. Who who, who just a, a corporate uh, yeah corporate players because uh, uh, it was a cleaning up everything anything that could hinder them from plundering the Congo, right. uh, which included the removing the dictator Mobutu. And here you have to to know that uh, the truth is that the Mobutu was a, a product of America. America is the one who. Which put him on to successfully into power no for doubt. forty years. So yeah, that's a fact. They they were tired of him. So because they were tired of him, they had to remove him. So because they, was he trying to claim? He was trying to assert some authority over those mineral rich lands, and so was he removed for that reason? Is that how you see yeah, it? Yeah, he was removed. He was removed, and they put in new leaders from Rwanda. Actually, from <laughs> then, Rwanda which was put in the Congo to rule over Congo was of Rwandan origin. But you wouldn't say Mobutu. If you guys know Africa, you know, Mobutu has his own problems. You're not trying to say he's a good guy. What you're trying to say is there's no, he wasn't a good, he wasn't a good guy. He wasn't a good guy. He um, impoverished his own people for the corporate, Western corporate. Mm -hmm. But he was the old, they no longer needed him, so they had to remove him. So at this point, you're a 20, maybe 18-year-old guy. You do not have a PhD, because my the listeners of Watar want to know, <laughs> how the heck does this guy get a PhD? You're, you're on the run or in a refugee camp for two, three years. Now you're in Kinshasa. That city is being now overrun by the same people who have caused hell for you. Yes. And now what happens? So when we were in Kinshasa, uh, for some unfortunate reasons, I was with my cousin called uh, Leonard. And uh, as we were walking, looking for where to hide ourselves, because the people who had the culture in Rwanda were Rwandans, uh, the Tutsis. Uh, so we could hear what they were talking about. But they didn't know who we were because we were 
among the Congolese, we mm. look like them. So uh, most of the Congolese people are Bantus. So we have a similar features. Mm -hmm. So as it was a very easy uh, to hide among the crowd. But if for some reason, uh, a miraculous reason, I had a, a Bible. I had been running, carrying a Bible. I had nothing else but the Bible. I had left everything. So I was uh, stuck with this Bible, then uh, one of the Rwandan soldiers saw it because it had been uh, wrapped up very well as a, as a, um, a camera. So they thought it was a camera. Then they, they, he talked to a Congolese guy in Lingala. Uh, he didn't know that I, I could uh, hear Lingala. So ah, he took, I see. He didn't realize yeah, you spoke that language. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't realize that I could speak that. So he told him to call that young man to bring that camera and see what he's doing with that camera. So when I went uh, with that Bible, I told them this is a Bible. This is not a camera. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, in that Bible, there were photos of my family, uh, relatives who had weddings. So you could tell that these weddings, because those guys were senior people, you could tell that uh, uh, the wedding took place in Rwanda. There was no, <laughs> no hiding. So I knew I was a dead meat there. Uh -huh. So I told them, this is a, not a Bible, uh, a camera, it's a Bible. Then they said they open it. So I opened it for some reasons, which I'm yet to understand. But now I understand probably for some reasons, the photos, all the photos fell down, face down. So they fell off the, uh, the tarmac road. And they couldn't face, see them. Face down. So you could see it's a, a lot of, there were a lot of photos. But he all faced down. So they said, oh, then they asked me, where are you going? I told them, I'm a preacher. So I'm a preacher. Now you have liberated us. I'm going for a Christian crusade so that we celebrate your victory, your liberation. That's what I'm going to do. Wow. All they said, yeah, go and they pray for us and thank you and they're going to celebrate. So I picked the photos put them back into the Bible, and they ran. So that day up to now, I don't know why God decided to save me that day, but he, <laughs> I was going to be killed. That day. You were, yeah. And this is... I was sure. This is... I, I, even, I even froze. I froze. I, it's like my mind was not working. When the photos fell down. So now, you're... But you're... You're now in the West, Central West Africa. You're from Rwanda. You've been, and now don't you don't you end up going back east? Don't you? Doesn't... Yes, later, uh, later. So uh, Kinshasa was um, captured. So uh, my cousin uh, Leonard was also captured. And in that process, they realized that he was a Rwandese, and they took him. So later. He was a bond alive. He was reached at the national stadium alive that they, day. They burned. They burned him alive there. Yes. So 
me, I survived. Then I crossed over into uh, into Congo Brazzaville. Then uh, <clears throat> later, to cut the story short, then uh, uh, it was uh, we said let's go back to Rwanda to see what is uh, happening there. So the UNHCR uh, told us that they wanted to take us for resettlement to other countries. This is the UNHCR. That's the refugee group in the UN that helps. Yes. Supposedly helps refugees. So yes. So the UNHCR, instead of taking it as to where it had promised us that they wanted to take us, so that we where we'll be able to study and continue our education, uh, they took us back to Rwanda. Hmm. Remember what I said at the beginning that the UN, US, UK, or humanitarian, all humanitarian organizations supported the new regime. Uh, so they were doing everything possible to bring refugees back to Rwanda so that the new regime has something to show to the world that they have people to rule. So we ended up, but we ended up. We ended up back to Rwanda, and we were put in the torture chambers. Like actual, you were tortured. Yeah, we were we were back in Kigali. Then they took us to torture chambers. We were tortured day and night. And the first instructions, uh, one of the Tutsi general gave it to another Tutsi soldier was that they he wanted to see. 40, at least 40 dead bodies of Hutus every day. Mm. So we were beaten and starved to death and many people died. So you remember the Bible in Kinshasa? Yes. I still had it. And when we arrived in Kigari, the Bible was taken from me. And But I had a Immediately after that incident, I threw all the pictures into the river, Congo River. Mm. So then they took the, the Bible, and later someone brought back the Bible to me because he said, I have seen it. You have read this Bible, and I know you are going to need it inside there. So mm. there is no reason to keep it away from me because you have been reading it. So the Bible inside, when we were being tortured, we decided to form a fellowship group. And so that even if we die, at least we die knowing that we are in the hands of God. So through that fellowship, 67 people gave their lives to, to Jesus. And um, I remember the day that they said that we are committed, we didn't have water to baptize them, and we were not even with a pastor. So what we did, we just uh, prayed the whole day, and uh, luckily that day we were not beaten. They they started beating us the next day. Then um, what surprised me is that 90% of the people who gave their lives to Jesus inside that, that torture chamber all died inside there. They did. They did. So I was a kind of the pastor. I did die there. I don't know why, but I was supposed to die there. So to 
fasten forward the story. Uh, this they then they tortured us a lot, and um, then uh, threw a grenade, a hand grenade, among ourselves, and uh, eighteen people died. And um, I was among the people who were seriously injured. Mm-hmm. And uh, they thought I was dead, so they used it to remove the dead bodies from the torture chamber and take them to the makeshift mortuary. So they took my body to the mortuary, and uh, there uh, we the bodies used to wait for the Red Cross to come and collect the bodies and put them in the black uh, body bags, and they take them for mass burial. So when the <clears throat> the Red Cross came to take our bodies, they had to confirm if we were all, uh, totally dead. Mm-hmm. So they heard that I still had some kind of um, distant pulse, and the pulse, then they took me to the clinic, which used to be in a place called the Kyovu in the Chigari, and they treated me. And uh, then the story broke out that uh, actually there are people being tortured in certain places. Ah, because you had found your way out. You were an example of what was being hidden. Yes, yes. So then uh, the story broke out. Then uh, they had killed so, so many people. Actually, around 80% of us had been killed inside there. So then uh, to show to the international media and the humanitarian organizations that they they didn't kill people, they had to release us. So when they released me, I went to a camp, a concentration camp, where they used to indoctrinate us. They used to indoctrinate us, stayed there. When I went home, they had wiped out almost everybody. They had destroyed our my father's buildings, our neighbors, they had killed our neighbors in the caves. And your family, right? Yeah. Thousands of thousands of people had been killed from northern Rwanda. Uh, that is even written in many academic journals. So uh, one day they said that uh, it looks like, uh, since you know everything, they fear that you will be sharing your story. And they don't want that. We have many cases of people who survived their torture and came into their villages and they followed them and killed them. And they killed them to quiet them. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And this is quiet. you. This is you now. Yeah. And they're trying now to, back and, in Rwanda. And your friends are trying to figure out what to do with you. Yes, back in Rwanda. So uh everybody they had killed um, my mother, I couldn't find my mother at all. Had been truly bounded with my siblings alive in in a in a, a cave nearby near our house, and uh, so they had killed your family. You you cut out. Yeah, they had killed my family and uh, my mother. My mother had fled again to Congo. They had killed my uncles, my aunties, my my neighbors. They had killed almost everybody. In that was in the 97 and 98, and uh, so. 
uh, someone looked at the situation and uh, decided to help me get out. I, and um, I got out into Uganda, then went back, went to Kenya. So I ended up in a refugee camp in Kenya. Uh, basically, that's uh, the brief of my story. So yeah, yeah, that is not this, <laughs> William. You, he's a, yeah. this is the brief overview. Lord yes. have mercy, this is incredible. Yeah. So, so mm-hmm. now in Kenya, just help us go quickly because we, I mean, we could do this for hours. You've reached Kenya, and suddenly now you find your way to becoming educated. And so in Kenya, come west, in a, come west. In a, how, how do you get yeah, educated? In a, yeah, in Kenya, uh, things were tough, or were still tough, because I was in a refugee camp, and the uh, refugees in Kenya are, are not supposed to mingle with the local people. So I was in this uh, huge refugee camp, which uh, hosted around uh, 300,000 300, refugees. Man, these are huge camps. These are huge. Yeah, it's it's called the Kakum, which hosts refugees from Ethiopia, from Southern Sudan, from Uganda, mm. from Uganda, from Congo, from Burundi, from Somalia. So it's it's a mess. And uh, when I arrived there, I found other refugees who had been there for close to twenty years. So they had arrived there as young, married. Now they had the kids were my age mate. So then I asked myself, now you came here as a young boy, as a young man as me, you married, now you have someone of my age. So is it is it this what is going to be my future life? Right. So one day I that time I was walking using crutches. That's a, a story I, I jumped because it's a long story. So I was walking with wounds, fresh wounds and crutches. So I I said, I'm used to going, so I better get out of this car. So one night I just got out of the camp. I started walking. I walked for two weeks to get to the main road. I wanted to go to the city in Nairobi because I said instead of feeling dying in this concentration camp, let me die in the street where people will see my body. So I ended up in Nairobi, then at UNHCR again. UNHCR used the note to help refugees, especially refugees from Congo, from Burundi, from Rwanda. They used the note to support them. Because of that conspiracy, I was I told you, Ari. Hmm. So I ended up on the street begging as a beggar and uh, scavenging, um, eating food from a restaurant that night. People had uh, left on on the tables. So one day I met a good, this good Samaritan who looked at me and said, told me. I look at you and the, there is a voice that tells me that you, you don't deserve it to be here. Mm. That's what he told me. So I told him, but I am a, I'm a total beggar now. Here I am. So I'm looking for something to eat. If you have anything to give me to eat, well and good. If you don't have, God bless you and have a wonderful day. 
Now he said, he gave me $20. He said, I'm traveling to a conference in Geneva. I am back in two weeks. Here is $20 going to buy food. Then uh, let's meet in two weeks. So when I got the $20, that was a lot of money to me. It was my first time to touch such kind of amount of money in my life. So I was so happy mm-hmm. because I, now I'm not going to, to scavenge for something to eat for the next two weeks, or even the next two months, because that money bought a manager to buy us a, a sack of rice and a sack of beans and a, a liter of oil and salt. So we were all sorted. We were rich people. <laughs> we were so all said, sorted. Yes, you were. Yes, I said, for the next two months, I'm not going to go back to the street where people are spitting on my face when I beg from them. I'm just going to sit down and eat and feel happy about myself. That's what I did. And in two weeks, uh, the guy, is, he had a promise, he came back and uh, to look for me. And uh, because I had shown him where we used to sleep mm-hmm. outside UNHCR, and uh, he said, can you go to church? I was smelling because no shower, no nothing, sure. only having one cloth uh, without anything to, to exchange, to change. So I was smelling. And I told him, actually, I'm very smelly. I don't think even I deserve it to be closer to you. He said, no, don't mind about it. Let's go to church. So I told him, let me, for, uh, let me wash my face. Let me wash my face. Uh, then we go. So I washed in my face and entered his nice car. Um, this uh, very big truck, and uh, we call them Pajero uh, and the Prado. Yeah, he had a Prado car, a very nice one. And uh, 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 what a, a car? A Prado. Uh, Prado Toyota okay. Prado. Yeah, which is a SUV. Mm-hmm. So I entered the car, it was smelling so nice. So I said, by the time we arrive at the church, my smell would have changed from uh, because of... <laughs> you had to ruin the car. <laughs> <laughs> so... You remember the, this. I like, still remember it. Yeah. That day, I still remember it because it was an important day in my life. So uh, when we arrived at the church, he introduced me to his family, then uh, his son, I sat between his son and his wife. And uh, that day, even he was preaching, he preached after the preaching, after the service, he took me to, they took me to the house for lunch. And then they said, William, uh, we have been praying about your issues and uh, there is a voice inside us that is telling us that we should support you until you will be able to stand on your own. Mm. Uh, after hearing that, I just uh, cried because nobody had told me that. Many people had made thousands and millions of promises, but uh, they all ended up in disappointment. Yep. Right? And uh, I told them, thank you. And uh, I just left it to God. Actually, that day, they gave me $50 to go and look for a one-bedroom house with water and electricity. Imagine this, it was someone who was sleeping outside. Yeah. Uh, Cloth to change, no food, no water, no nothing. Now I'm being told to go and look for a house 
one bedroom house uh, with electricity, with the security features. It was wonderful. It was like a, a resurrection. Wow. It was like a rebirth to me. I couldn't believe. And um, so, and they said after you have gotten the house, uh, also look for one refugee that uh, you feel comfortable with. Among those refugees from Somalia, Ethiopia, young like you, you have been sleeping outside together. You you can host them so that you are not uh, alone. Mm. They must live under your own authority because we are the only one that we are supporting. So, and I got to the house, then the next day I came and told them that I have gotten the house. I even slept there. There was no blanket, no mattress. I just <laughs> slept on the floor, laid down. Love which it. was very cold and it was so beautiful. It was the sweetest night of my life. Mm. And so the next day I came to the house now. Uh, they lived in this, get the community. So you had to press uh, the button. Then uh, you talk to someone through the internet. Oh, it's like a it's 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 like an HOA. It's like a housing organization. You had to go in. Yes. Wow. Yes. Look at you. So yeah. Are you? Do you still have your faith even before this beautiful family helps you? Were you still thinking there's a God, or did they help you think there's a God? No. Before that, I had to give it. I, I had given up, but also still, when I look back to other colleagues who died inside the torture chamber, I still knew there was God. Mm. This story, I have cut many, many parts, because there is a way God visited me in the torture chamber and said, you are going to flee, but don't go to the West, go to the East, because that's where your peace belongs. Mm. Everyone to me. I, at night, but after, <laughs> you see, it's very hard to understand God, God's ways. After that voice came to me, that's when actually I was taken to the mortuary. Yeah, as a dead man, as a dead man. So uh, how do how do those two things reconcile? A voice from nowhere came and told me, actually it gave me even a, a Bible verse, and they told me and they gave me the picture of the place I will live. But when I arrived in Nairobi, actually, when you read my book, you will find those stories there. So when I, uh, when I arrived in Nairobi, I went to attend a crusade, a Christian crusade, which were attended by thousands and thousands. Actually, the picture I saw that day was the same exact picture that this anonymous voice, which came to me oh. in a talk, had shown me that this is the place you are going to go, and this way you will find your peace. So, fast and forward. <clears throat> uh, now, I have gotten the house, and they, then they come to see, to look at it, and they, so they paid for the whole year. They said, let's pay for it the whole year and we will be bringing you food every month so that you relax. That's what yeah. they tell you. You have gone through a lot. We want you to relax. Uh, after one year, we God will decide what he wants for you. 
but what we wanted for you now, it's you relax. So I stayed there. They paid everything for me. So it's like Jesus paid everything for me. Mm -hmm. uh, then they took me to a computer school and an English school. And I started learning English. So to cut the story short, then they took me to a university, a university called the Desta University. It's a Christian university, which is an American kind of uh, Christian university. And uh, they took me to Desta University. So when I got to Desta University, and it was uh, amazing. Everybody, they English. Kenyans speak faster English. That's their first language. I grew up mm -hmm. speaking. Right, so, you speak French, and then uh, what was your Rwandan language growing up? Yeah, Kenya, Rwanda. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. and um, then um, when I was in the class, everybody was speaking so fast, and I said, yeah, I'm going to fail, but it's good to fight before I give up. So, <laughs> yeah, I used to spend the whole day in the library until midnight, past midnight. The librarian used to come to me and say, hey, my brother, we are closing the library. We we still have the next time. We're going to sleep. <laughs> so, Get home. Yeah. Then after that, when my uh, exam results came, guess what? Actually, I had uh, performed. My GPA was above 3.4. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it. So, and then uh, from that time to cut the story short, so many things happened and uh, many you people- You found your way. You found your way toward higher education. And yes, I finished- now teaching uh, and now a professor with a with a PhD, right? Yes. So I finished my education at Desta. Then later got a, a job with the office of the president of Kenya. Uh worked there for some time. Then uh, some People uh, funded my education at U.S. I came to do my master's in the U.S. I went at Brandeis University. Then after that, I went to Harvard University, worked at Harvard. Then I worked at Boston University. Then later, I got a scholarship with the, from the Australian government uh, to do my PhD in Australia. So I went to do my PhD in Australia for some years. Then I came back. So basically, that's a nutshell of my story. Let me ask you this to get back and maybe just delve into this conversation real quickly. Mm. So you, I mean, you went through hell and you were resurrected in many ways and you found yourself now trying to make sense of this new world. And in the new world, you must have started to see this, this them, right? This you kept saying they wanted this and they had interest and these these forces were creating war and these forces were creating these these torture camps and now that you're removed and you've made your way I've met your lovely wife you have your kids what are these forces that you see at play and how do you characterize them and categorize them are they something like new in history or are they something old this these forces that have created these 
these torture chambers or, or these difficult circumstances for these small countries? What are these forces to you? Uh, there is nothing new in this world. Uh, we have to understand that we are living in a world of two things, two systems, good and evil. Uh, we have to recognize that as a Christian. So the good and evil, they will always collide in mm -hmm. one way or another. So that's what is still happening. In most of the cases, if you look at the political interest are guided by other forces that we don't know. So what matters is the only profit, regardless of the amount of blood is shed, as long as they, they succeed in the only way, the political ways. So mm. the kind of issues that we deal with, and um, uh, you have to look at it in both ways, uh, as a, uh, in a political way, but also uh, in a Christian way. In a Christian way, we are called to always pray uh, for our government so that uh, when they make decisions, they don't make those are the detrimental decisions that are going to, to share the other people's blood. Uh, those are kind of the issues that we, we continue experiencing to this day as we speak. More than 2 million women and children have been raped in the DRC, but you will never see it on the media in, the, in America or in the Western countries. No. More than 12 million people have been killed ever since that time. Mm. That time that the refugee camps were invaded, more than 12 million people have been killed uh, in the DRC. It, you have to understand how the... <laughs> The two systems, the good and evil, operate. Uh, that's the fact. Um, but that, that's what, a great, insightful way to understand. Yeah, it's it's not yeah. really about a timeline or a past and a future. It's it's really about an ongoing uh, a battle. Between, yeah, it's a battle. It's a yeah. battle. Uh, it's a battle between a good and evil. Yeah, and that's right. Evil always causes a Havoc, mayhem, destruction, chaos. Then, yeah, chaos. That's what evil does. And the evil does not do that uh, outside of politics because uh, we are in a political system. We are in That's a political right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So the evil uses the, the setup, uh, the political setup. You, to, make, you make me recall. Uh, the, I've mentioned it here on this this podcast before. You make me recall the the origins of the Greek word uh, uh, for the devil, diabolos, and and symbolos, which is symbolos is, you know, in the Greek is all things united. It really means icon or image of things yes. united as they should be. So you, you, when you see the an icon, you see. The totality of the of the thing of the goodness in one flash moment in, in an icon mm -hmm. of goodness of unity, yeah. and diabolos is the Greek for that which is separated, or in other words, that which is chaotic and and destroyed, or it's yes. in other words, it's fading from unity to total uh, disintegration. So things diabolos or diabolo in Latin or devilish are things which destroy and tear apart and it feels like you're saying 
in history, and you see it old and new world, forces and people, it's people too, who come together to either create symbolos or diabolos, right? That yes. which is meant to be beautiful and, and united or that which is being torn apart. And, 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 and I, I'm reminded of that idea from my own tradition when I hear your story. Very interesting. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because um, it must have been God that uh, I survived all this. Many, many people, many people. If you look, you go back to my village where I was born, you can't find any anybody of my age. They were all killed. Wow. They were all killed, but I'm still alive. So um, the reason why I'm still alive is just to tell the story of what happened. But at the end of time, it's good for we as a Christians, we can, in our own small way, we can uh, alleviate the suffering of other people. So whatever I do in my activities, in free time, with the resources that uh, God has blessed me with, I always try to do a little bit better than uh, the current. So I try to improve on the current situation of somebody. <clears throat> if I take someone to school, uh, pay the school fees, because that's where my means uh, reach. Uh -huh. Then those people, uh, that person will say, thank God. But William, you could choose to add to the chaos through anger, revenge. You could be telling a different story right now. You could be angry. And I just know that you, if you did, you'd be righteous, but you would also be adding to the chaos but instead you tell your story differently actually you are right because they are, people tell story they always say how come you are not um, angry with who uh, I I'm not going to help people to to add to the diablos that you are talking about I in my own small way there's a reason why that God left me alive. Otherwise, I could have gone a long, long, long time when I was still here. Mm. Even I, I turned 20. But here I am 25 years later. Uh, here I am. We are sharing the story. And um, looking back and say, and say, it must have been God yeah. that you survived through all those kind of things. Yeah, those people who hurt me, some of them actually, uh, I know them. One of them is a guy called um, uh, uh, <clears throat> who was a minister of, uh, I think, of foreign affairs or health in Rwanda. It's called uh, Richard, Richard Sesevier. This guy, Richard Sesevier, when he was a captain, he took my uncle from altar in the church in Ibugogo, in a place called Ibugogo. He took him from altar and they went and they killed him with the other church members. Mm. And the, later, the agence de press asked him, and they said, no, we are not the ones who did it. He's a cripple. His videos are online. Also. The guy now had a stroke. Yeah? 
had a stroke. Not, um, not because I'm happy that he had a stroke, but what I'm trying to say is that God has his own way. Revenge belongs to God. Yeah. Yeah. Revenge belongs to God. And uh, so what I can only say is that uh, as a Christian, especially like uh, me, who have been given a second chance, she just said to try and use that time well and uh, touch other people's lives the same way other people touched my life. The people who helped me throughout the life, well, we, we have no relationship at all. And uh, some of, most of them are Christians, others are not Christians, uh, but uh, all of them wanted uh, one thing, yeah. my life much better. Yeah. So now you and I have gotten together we're working on some things as we tie this up. Let's, well, you'll come back, but I just want to say to folks listening, um, Dr. William uh, Toyagizi out in San Diego State, uh, we're now talking about some really neat partnerships. He, uh, I'll just say this, William, you're an entrepreneur, a professor, and somebody who has some pretty brilliant ideas about East African development. So first things, and Dr. William are talking about ways to cooperate. And if this story at all makes you interested in ways of helping us cooperate and help folks, because, I mean, we talk, We I think this is for our next podcast, but, you know, development or aid, and I want you to speak on this, but I'll just say two cents. Um, it's very good in your life that someone gave you $50, it changed your life. Like, let's just be honest. And that is a thing that happens. But you always, you notice that the proper way to give is authentically by knowing people and understanding people. And that creates its own energy. And that's what we're always trying to do. And so what I'm trying to say is, is I think, William, there's something cool and brilliant and beautiful about the way you understand aid now. And I feel like you're a spokesperson for the authentic process, which is something mm -hmm. like sustainability. They were trying to get you to be sustainable, not just eat for that day, but sustainable. You see, they adopted you in the way yes. God adopts people. They adopted you. And so I just love our partnership where we're going to try to figure this out together. Like, how do we do this in East Africa? So I really look forward to continuing that conversation with you because you have insight that, you know, we'll never have, um, not only about Africa, yeah. but about life. Yeah, thank you very much. So <clears throat> one of the problems that uh, developing countries have is that uh, they have a bad uh, management, poor management, poor leadership. Uh, the people know, the citizens know what they want, and also they know how to get out. But the problem is that the, the, the systems that we have been talking about, the leadership systems, those political systems don't put the mechanisms in a place to enable those people get out of poverty. So, uh, there are some reasons why. One of the reasons is that in many countries, when you keep people poor, then you can rule them forever because they won't have a time to think about uh, what you are doing to them. No doubt. Always been in a survival mode. That's what I always tell people. 
there are times that I were, I was in a survival mode. I couldn't even talk about something like this because I didn't have that time. It was just a, a, survival, a survival mode. I didn't know that I would be alive tomorrow. I, I won't. There are times that I knew to reach the next hour was a, a miracle. Mm. Even the people from poor countries. We cut off right when you were talking about how every day is a survival moment, so it becomes yes. really difficult to actually sustain. Yes. So what I was trying to do, to say is that uh, the project that uh, the humanitarian kind of a project that we should do is are those projects which have a sustainability uh, backup, whereby <clears throat> because the humanitarian uh, project uh, have a time limit, but when the humanitarian project are backed by backed up by sustainable investment project, then they have a, a lifelong ability to, right. to achieve the humanitarian activities. So that's what I always advocate that. Even if we are doing a humanitarian <clears throat> activities to help people get out of poverty, uh, it should be done in a sustainable way so that those people uh, once we do, uh, we help people, then uh, tomorrow those people will be able to help themselves. One of the ways of doing that is providing the people access to education, access to health care, access to uh, uh, clean water, access to renewable energy, such kind of things. Mm -hmm. That, And also access to what we call financial inclusion so that the people can have a such kind of opportunity also to better themselves. Let's do this. Let's leave it there. But when we come back, um, when we're down the road a little bit, we'll talk about yeah. some of your unique ideas for how to do that, which it, it, it includes some pretty interesting sort of insight into moving money and the way to do that with apps. We talk about uh, the housing uh, investment potential going on in Kenya and East Africa. I think people don't realize I think they hear your story and think that's all of Africa, but it's, it's not. <laughs> There's a lot of other no, things going on. <laughs> no, Africa. Africa is is a bigger continent. It has yeah. a four countries. So if a mess is happening in one part of the region, it does not mean that it's happening in some way. And one of the problems is that people look at Africa as the United States of America. Africa is not united. Africa has independent countries. So that's why I have problems with people who say I'm going to Africa. Where <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, where well, exactly in Africa? Yeah. It's like saying, I'm going to Asia. Okay, that's cool. Yes. That's really big. But where, but where in Asia? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Such kind of. So uh, when we have a time, we. Try to talk about those kind of let's new do it. We'll do it. Uh, yeah, and definitely, uh, yeah. folks who are out there, um, if you're East African connected, give me a give me a give me a call. And so I'll just say thank you. Yeah, th thank you very much. Um, we didn't lose you, did we? No, you're still. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, but uh, I'll be in touch, and let's talk again pretty soon. 
and we'll cover more things. I just wanted you to share your philosophy in that 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 incredible story. We'll link to your book. Yes. Uh, Survivors Uncensored. It's a hundred mm-hmm. testimonies, well, more actually, on the Rwandan genocide. Uh, and one of the things that it does is it asks you to reconsider the narrative and the narrators uh, of the Rwanda story as per the West, because we learn certain things as Westerners. Uh, and this is an inspiring book about taking a second look. Uh, it's not as easy as all the Hutus tried to kill the Tutsis. It doesn't work like that. And so... Or or, or, or Tutsis tried to kill, kill the Hutus. It doesn't work like yeah. that. Yeah. It's, it's a complicated that, right? story. Yeah. It's a complicated and, story. So look for that. Look at our uh, our pod notes. You can see the links. We're going to talk again, William. Uh, reach your beautiful family. And I uh, say hi to the family as well. Yes, I will. Helen says hello yeah. to you. So uh, uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you a lot. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Well, that was what? What was that? Except for magnificent and rough and sad and beautiful sweet sorrow i want to thank you dr william i want to thank all of you who are listening uh every day there's truly amazing blessings happening all across this little thing we call first things foundation uh having william as a friend and as a an advisor on our board and having you as listeners And having this moment right now and this outro and this saying goodbye to just think, how do we maintain the grace? Uh, And how do we remember the gifts that we have all around us? How do we do that? Uh, Another way of saying it is, is how do we do it so poorly (laughs) in light of that story? Uh, Little by little. That's how we do it. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. William Fayegizi. Thank you, all the people who support First Things Foundation. Go to our website. There are a lot of stories, not like that. Very few are like that. We have stories of people who are caught in these situations of sorts in neighborhoods that are tough. We're just trying to help them out. May we all be like like William's friend who gave him those $20. Little by little, peace to you and water.